Hey, Spooksters, it's Tara. I'm jumping on before we dive into this week's episode. So if you caught my live last week, we are doing a giveaway for us hitting 30,000 downloads. Now, if you can't tell by the title or description, this week we are chatting about the Golden State Killer. The prize, as I said, is going to tie into this episode. We are giving away the true crime book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. So all you have to do is just head over to our Facebook, our group, our Instagram, or even our Twitter and just leave a comment. We are going to be having a question on there for you and we just want your answer. And we're also curious. That question is going to be, who is a serial killer from your home state? Or if there isn't one, who's someone well known from your state? And that can be a celebrity, a chef, athlete, whoever. We want to hear it. So that'll be the way to enter into that. And if you'd like a bonus entry, there's a couple ways. So current patrons, once you drop that comment, you'll get an automatic bonus entry. And if you're not part of the Spookster Club, you can join the Patreon Club at any tier, and that'll get you that bonus entry as well. And those will also count towards our big Halloween giveaway. If you want details on that, check out the group or any of our socials for that. So this will actually run starting today through the... 19th. So we're giving you guys about two weeks to get listening and head over to the socials and leave those comments for us. And then we will announce the winner on our stabby snippet that will go up on August 22nd, which is a Thursday. And it will also be on that social. So yeah, thank you guys so much. And we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Hey there, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode of Three Spooked Girls. It's Jessica, and as always, I am joined by my favorite ghoul friend, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. And this week, we are coming at you with something for me that I've secretly become obsessed with. (laughs) It's not such a secret to Tara. No. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And something that's a little bit terrifying for me because, well, I lived like six miles away from this motherfucker. So we're going to be talking today about the Golden State Killer. Yes. He has many names and we will go over them later. But, you know, first we'll do drinks, business, all that stuff. So what you drinking today? Well, since we are talking about a California themed serial killer person, Mm -hmm. I went with a Stella Rosa Black, also in theme with The Night and, you know. All of that good stuff. So that's what I got. What's our drink you picked for tonight? So I was going with the theme of the original Night Stalker, which is one of his names. So I was trying to look up cocktails with the name Stalker in it. And that didn't get me very far until I came across this one on Pinterest called Celery Stalker Gin Cocktail. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I know it's a stretch, but when I first read it, like my eyes didn't focus and I thought it said serial stalker. I was like, oh, perfect. And then I was like, <laughs> my eyes focused. And I was like, that says celery. So 
how you make this delightful cocktail, which don't worry, there's no like actual um like ground bits of celery in this thing. Oh, good. I was a little worried. I'm like, is there <laughs> celery juice in this? Because Jessica, ain't no one going to drink these. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do people make my drinks? I don't know. We They sure fucking retweet them and heart them. So if you actually drink them, let us know. Yeah. Send us pictures, something. Yes. <laughs> so this is made with my, I'm going to say at least favorite liqueur, liquor, is gin. So it's two ounces of gin, one ounce of sinsel, one drink. Please drink one ounce of simple syrup, one ounce of fresh lime juice, two dashes of bitters, champagne or champagne, you know, as the proper name, and one cucumber sliced for garnish. And then there's also like in the photo, there's like, you know how when you peel celery and if you're looking at me like I'm crazy, then grab a stalk of celery. It looks like someone just grabbed it and pulled. Oh, like the little strand. Yeah. Mm hmm. And it made like, and then it curly cued, and then they put that next to the cucumber. Is there not even a stock in it? Nope. I mean, if you want to, just go ahead and throw that bitch in there. I mean, I don't care. Live your best life. Live your best life. Please live your best life. But again, if you're eating celery with it, then it like cancels out the calories. There you go. Boom. <laughs> right? So let's do our business right now. So as always, Tara puts the link tree in the show notes down below. It has all of it, including our new merch store. I don't know if you've gone over there and checked some stuff out, but it's pretty cool. Tara and I have gotten a few pieces of merchandise. I will say one of the great things about them is they do have excellent customer service and they're very responsive. I messaged them, I think, after the close of their business. And by the next morning, I had an answer to my issue. They had sent me a t-shirt instead of the long sleeve shirt I ordered. And they said, you can either send it back or keep the t-shirt. It's up to you. And I was like, well, you know, I'm going to keep a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. So what they asked me to do is just take a picture of the item I received, a picture of my order slip and send it to them. And it was really great. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I've loved everything I've yeah, got. I love it. It's all been really good quality and... You did really awesome with all of our little fun designs. I'm excited. And we're going to have new stuff rolling out in August sometime, right? Yeah, this month. This month. Yeah, I was like, wait, mm-hmm. when does this go up? Because it's still July when we're recording. Sorry, I got confused. It's August, August 5th. <laughs> panic, panic. <laughs> <gasps> right, that's how we do. We panic. Um, <laughs> so check it out. All of our other stuff, all of our social medias in the link tree, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook is at Three Spooked Girls. We have our official Facebook group, Three Spooked Girls Official. If you are a $5 or not patron, you have your own special Facebook group now that you get to interact with Tara and I on a regular basis and Mm -hmm. do fun things like have your own lives and be able to ask us questions in a more direct fashion and interact with a little bit of a smaller Spookster Club community. So we're calling it the Spookster Club. And if you want to be part of the Spookster Club, how do they do it, Tara? How do they become a part of a Spookster Club? Go to the show notes, click on the link tree, and click on Patreon, or go to patreon.com slash three spook girls and click on the five or ten dollar tier, and you can come hang out with us there. And then there is in the blog post on Patreon is the Facebook group, or you can just search Spookster Club, or just let us know and we'll add you in there. Mm-hmm. So when this is up, we'll have done our first live hangout Q&A thingy uh, with our current $5 and $10 patrons. So yeah, if you'd like to come hang out, Mm -hmm. get some free swag, get some mugs, get episodes dedicated to you, because also by this point, our 
first $10 patron episode. It's going to be bonus episodes coming at you coming soon for Alice. So yeah, check that out. Yes. So that's exciting. And now that we're done with the Patreon spiel, we are going to take a quick break. We have two promos for you guys to listen to this week. They are from Happy Go Lucky and Two Scared Siblings. Check them out. In a world where there are only pigeons. You awaken what appears to be a small town jail cell. You're Eric Wolfgang. I'm like a superhero. Well, I'm surprised you haven't heard of me. Yo, yo, what's going on, man? This is crazy. We came to rescue you. We need to find something. But he's dressed in all black. Well, go away. You're all looking Martin. I have never been in here. What's up, my rainbow-colored friends? You're going to have to hold my hand here, bud. This tomfoolery will definitely be written in my notes this evening. Where's Eric? What does she do with Eric? Oh, wait, wait, no, no, no. Hey, this is Daniel here. If you're ready for mystery and high adventure in an actual play format that's clean, fun, and appropriate for the whole family, then join us in the happy-go-lucky family as we create a world together each week. Lucky is spelled L-U-K-K-Y, and we're a member of the Necropodicon Podcasting Network. Tune in each week anywhere podcasts can be found. Hello. Hello. We're Two Scared Siblings. I'm Andrea. I'm Ren. And we talk about all horror things. So. Yeah, I said that really salesman corny. <laughs> yeah. I'm Ren. And buy yeah. this car. Why, hello there, <laughs> folks. <laughs> Come check um, out our horror podcast. And there's a lot of this crap, too. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of this crap. We do this. But everything horror. So true crime... Ghost stories. Like a lot of ghost stories. Conspiracies, I don't know, gross diseases. Everything. All, like actual fictional stories and like media critiques in the horror genre. Anything that's Everything horrible. horror. So if you like horrible yep. shit, come listen to us. Yeah, and you can email us too. We do audience participation at twoscaredsiblings at gmail.com. So like you might be featured on an episode. So yeah, all things yeah. horror. Check us out. Bye. We love you. Bye. Mwah. So let's get right down to business today because this is going to be an action-packed episode because I am obsessed. God, yes. And this will probably... Jessica is our resident expert on this, so I'm just going to go ahead and just hand her the pretend microphone for majority of this. So you get to listen to her lovely voice. <laughs> Tara's going to like <laughs> read off facts and I'm going to be like, but wait! But wait! Listen to this. There's this. Right. So... <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I love it. I love it. When a like serial rapist and serial killer is literally arrested within like, I could ride my bike to his house and back if it was like a good day and I was super hydrated. Um. <laughs> I have a fun fact, though. Ooh, go ahead. He was caught on my birthday, though. This is true. Yes. So that was cool. What was that? Was that your what birthday? Last 2017. 18. What year is this? <laughs> we are in 2019, time traveler. <laughs> uh, okay, so 2018 was my 27th birthday. There we go. <laughs> now everybody knows how old I am. <laughs> I know you owed. And then Tara's going to be like, shut the fuck up. You're like older than me. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I'm older. It's fine. I'm going to cry. It's fine. Anyway, so he's known as several different names. He's known as the East Area Rapist, the Golden State Killer, which is his now, as Tara has schooled me on earlier today, is his proper name, <laughs> the Visalia Ransacker, the original Night Stalker, and the Diamond Knot Killer. Oh, boy. All right. He has been categorized as one of the most prolific serial rapists and murderers in California history, if not the country. Yeah, I was going to say, like, if it's not the country, it definitely should be. It's like him and Ted Bundy. 
Oh, yeah. Definitely. Which is weird that they're kind of both my favorite serial killers. Yeah, but not in a creepy, weird way. Yeah. I want to say this because my my fascination with these type of serial killers is because for a really long time, I wanted to go into early childhood development and really work psychologically on what these traits have because there are these like key lists of things that we should be looking for in childhoods. And one of the things I really want to be able to do (laughs) is stop children who may have these tendencies or wanted to do, I should say, to stop these children who have these tendencies from experiencing triggers throughout their life, like sexual abuse and stuff like that, and really kind of helping law enforcement hone in on it. That was something I wanted to do for a really long time. And then I got my other dream job. And so I was like, skipping off to that. (laughs) So I wanted to claim that, that I'm not some like weirdo that you guys should be worried about. It's more like I want to put them in a cage and study them. Yes. Okay. So roughly, I am going to go ahead and chat about with Jessica's expert commentary throughout. Mm -hmm. 74 through 79. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Joseph D'Angelo began his journey as the Visalia Ransacker in 1974. He was suspected to have committed around 120 crimes. The Ransacker would break into a single-family home and tear apart the interior while only stealing small items. The first recorded ransacking was on a Tuesday, March 19, 1974, when $50 worth of coins was stolen from a piggy bank. Most of the ransacker's activities involved breaking into houses, rifling through or vandalizing the owner's possessions, scattering women's underwear, and stealing a range of low-value items, while often ignoring banknotes and higher-valued items in plain sight. The ransacker would often arrange or display items in the house. Items emptied include piggy banks and coin jars, and stolen items include blue chip stamps, foreign or historic coins, and personal items such as single earrings, cufflinks, rings, or medallions, but also included six weapons and various types of ammunition. Multiple same-day ransackings were common as well, including 12 separate occurrences on Saturday, November 30th, 1974. Common MOs of the burglaries included scaling fences and moving through established routes such as parks, walkways, ditches, and trails, attempting to pry open multiple points of entry, particularly windows, leaving multiple points of escape open, especially windows, as well as the house, garage, and garden doors, moving removed window screens onto beds or into bedrooms, placing warning items which this is a huge one to note, Mm -hmm. such as dishes or bottles against doors or on door handles and later onto the victim's husbands or even sometimes onto the children, which I know this is like later, later, sorry, but I just had to be like, note this, asterisk this, sorry. (laughs) Yes, this is is a huge MO that kind of follows D'Angelo throughout. Yes. And I'm going to do a little asterisk too. So Joseph D'Angelo has been arrested for this. He currently is awaiting trial. So we're going to refer to him as D'Angelo sometimes, but we'll try to use the actual like serial killer or ransacker names because, you know, at the end of the day, he could be innocent, which I doubt it. They have DNA. So. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is wearing gloves, giving the absence of fingerprint evidence. After a spree of 18 months, the ransacker's crimes took a darker turn on September 11, 1975. On the state, a man, who is strongly believed to be the ransacker, broke into a home of Claude Snelling at 532 Whitney Lane, now South Whitney Street. Snelling, a journalism professor at the College of the Sequoias and who had previously chased a prowler discovered under his daughter's window around 10 p.m. on February 5, 1975, 
was awakened around 2 a.m. by strange noises in his home. Upon leaving his bedroom, Snelling shouted and ran through the open back door and confronted a ski-masked intruder in his carport attempting to kidnap his daughter, who had been subdued with threats of being stabbed or shot. Snelling was shot twice, staggered back into the house to his wife, and later died. After the shooting, the assailant fled the scene, leaving behind a stolen bicycle at 615 Redwood Street. After the murder, Beth Snelling, age 16, and a cheerleader at Mount Whitney High School, underwent hypnosis in order to gather further details. The Visalia Police Department also committed more resources to apprehending the ransacker, and a $4,000 reward was posted. Nighttime stakeouts were set up near the house that he had previously prowled, but the ransackings continued. Around 8.30 p.m. on December 12, 1975, a masked man entered the backyard of the house at 1505 West Coea Avenue, near where the ransacker had been reported to frequent. When Detective William McGowan, on stakeout inside the garage, attempted to detain the man, this... (laughs) This always makes me laugh. The suspect shrieked, removed his mask, and feigned surrender after McGowan fired a warning shot. However, after jumping the fence of the house at 1501, he also pulled out a revolver with his left hand and fired once near his face, shattering his flashlight. Nearby officers rushed to aid the officer, and the shooter was able to escape. Items collected as evidence included the flashlight, tennis shoe tracks, and dropped loot, which were blue chip stamps and a blue sock full of coins. So more junk, essentially, for souvenirs is what I'm taking from it, which is common, as we've talked about with other serial killers and other people. So I watched a interview with the other officer because why McGowan? Because he was in a, a McGowan or McGowan or whatever his name is. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> was, <laughs> I don't know how to say your name, Sarah. I sorry. Wherever he was stationed, he was in a garage of this home. And a lot of times the Visalia ransacker would find detached homes. Yeah. So obviously they're not attached to anything. So they would have their own garage. They'd have their own backyard. It wasn't like a condo or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So he was stationed in the garage. And then the ransacker walked down between the garage and the fence. And McGowan jumped out and was like, like, freeze. Yeah. And then the interview was with a detective or an investigator named James Vaughn. And he said he heard the highest pitched scream he'd ever heard a man make, Mm -hmm. which think about it is so disarming. Like if you see a man and all of a sudden he's like, "Ah," and you're like, oh, what the hell? What just (laughs) happened? Like spider what's going on, you know? (laughs) And as he's doing that, he reaches with his right hand and grabs his ski mask and starts pulling it up. And McGowan kind of starts to see him because the flashlight's in the face. And this is when he pulls the revolver out with his left hand and shoots him. Mm-hmm. And McGowan gets hit, I think, in the eye or something hits him in the eye. Right. Yeah. And I want to say that when I watched this interview with John John Vaughn, which I think is the cutest little name ever, which is the other detective, mm-hmm. he felt so guilty. Mm. His exact words were, If we were able to catch him, we wouldn't even be having this interview because there would be no East Area Rapist. There would be no original Night Stalker. There would be no Golden State Killer. So that really kind of broke my heart because I was like, man, this man has lived with this. With that guilt. Mm -hmm. But he, he comes in a little bit later, so. Yeah. Alrighty. So the Visalia Police Department, along with the Tulare County Sheriff's Office and California Highway Patrol, investigated and slowly pieced together all the reported incidences. Some occurrences were not immediately reported, giving their trivial nature, i.e. like the cheap stuff that was stolen or, you know, because everything was just like of little or no value, essentially. Mm -hmm. However... 
given the voyeurism and the personal nature of the thefts, the focus on the girls' photos or women's clothing, the deliberate ransacking behavior, or the theft of one of a pair of items, a darker motive seemed to be at play. Mm-hmm. Further, given the number of Mount Whitney High School students targeted in incidences, the location of crimes around the College of the Sequoias, and the eyewitness reports, investigators suspected a student may be involved, and 21 of the 37 main suspects listed by police by late 1975 were teens. Despite physical analysis and the unusual presence of or use of hand lotions, no signs of masturbation discharge, quote, were detected at crime scenes. Size 9 Converse tennis shoes prints and pry marks from various crimes also matched each other. Similarly, ballistics matched the 38 Miroku revolver stolen on August 31st, 1975 with shots fired by its owner during practice to the one used to kill Snelling. Following the second shooting, the ransacker was not believed to have committed another major crime in Visalia. Investigation remained the most expensive in Visalia's history. The ransacker was described as a young Caucasian male about 5 foot 10 and 180 to 200 pounds. He was physically fit and able to run, bike, and scale garden fences with relative ease. He was also appeared to be left-handed and skilled with using weapons. He also seemed obsessed with personal trinkets over items with high monetary value. So one of the things that looking at the fact that we have a suspect now, which is Joseph D'Angelo. D'Angelo was at the time of the Visalia ransackings and... He was going to the police academy in, I think he ended in early 1974 and then became a police officer with the, and I'm going to say this wrong, the Exeter Police Department. And this is an important MO to pay attention to because he lived in Exeter, worked in Exeter, but all his crimes were in Visalia, which is like, they're not that far from each other. Really easy to drive. Here's another weird thing. So he's working as a police officer in this uh, this town right next door. And this area gets government, like, federal funding to work on this burglar case because it's, like, big fucking deal. And Joseph D'Angelo is picked to head up this department. Of course he is. That, like, <laughs> makes things perfect for him. Like, just falls into place. Right. So they say that Joseph D'Angelo or this type of person eventually will develop. It's a um, paranphallic behavior. It's basically you're like sexually aroused by things that are not ordinary, like murder, shit like that. It's like deviant behavior. And the way that you look at most crimes and Ted Bundy said it is that I didn't just like go from being like Ted Bundy to like serial killer overnight. It progressed. So if you're taking the Visalia ransacking as Exhibit A, he started by breaking into people's homes. Mm -hmm. He took things of personal value, not monetary value. And they think before he would ransack people's homes, he would enter them numerous times before. Mm -hmm. They actually think that he started in 1973 as the Cordova cat burglar. Oh, yeah. I knew you were going to bring this up, so I didn't touch on this. (laughs) So... He was from Sacramento and then he went off to school and then, I mean, he graduated from Sac State with like a degree in criminology. He's a very intelligent man. He he understood how crimes worked and he was working for a police department that was heading up one of the investigations on his crimes. So my point with the whole like parenthetic behavior is that he gets to go back because he gets some sort of gratification out of this and he gets to go back and investigate these crimes and relive what he did. 
Also, he got to determine whether it was a legit part of the ransacker or just a break-in. So he could easily be like, you know what? This ain't nothing. Even though it probably matched. And none, And this is also like the 70s. So not everyone's talking to each other easily. He's just a big fat creep, obviously. Totally. You know, understatement of the century. Totally. Joseph D'Angelo is believed to have moved to the Sacramento area, progressing from burglary to rape in mid-1976. The crimes initially centered on the unincorporated areas of Carmichael, Citrus Heights, and Rancho Cordova, east of Sacramento. Most victims had seen or heard a prowler on their property before the attacks, and many had experienced break-ins. Police believed that the offender would conduct extensive recon in a targeted neighborhood, looking into windows and prowling in yards before selecting a home to attack. And if you read Michelle McNamara's book, There's plenty of accounts of this, which I definitely recommend. It's a great book. I'll Be Gone in the Dark. She did pass away before it was published, but it was finished up and published. And if you don't know who she is, she was an amazing, amazing person in the like true crime journalist community and everything. She had an awesome blog and all of that stuff. So yeah, definitely recommend it. It's great. It really is. And she has a famous husband. (laughs) Yes, Patton Oswalt. Love him. (laughs) I know you're a big fan of him, too. (laughs) I am. I love him. Especially his character on Parks and Rec. Yes. Thomas is buying stuff on Amazon right now. So I just snuck it into um, into his car. Nice. Okay. It's believed that he sometimes entered the homes of future victims to unlock windows, unload guns, and plant ligatures for future use. He frequently telephoned future victims, sometimes for months in advance, to learn their daily routines. Creepy. Mm-hmm. Although he originally targeted women alone in their homes or with children, the offender eventually preferred attacking couples. His M.O. was to break in through a window or a sliding glass door and awaken the sleeping occupants with a flashlight, threatening them with a handgun. Victims were then bound with ligatures, often shoelaces, which he found or brought with him, blindfolded and gagged with towels, which he had ripped into strips. The female victim was usually forced to tie up her male companion before she was bound. The bindings were often so tight that the victim's hands were numb for hours after being untied. He separated the couple, often stacking dishes onto the man's back, asterisk, asterisk, there you go, Uh and threatening to kill everyone in the house if he heard them rattle. He moved the woman into the living room and often raped her repeatedly, sometimes for several hours. The offender sometimes spent hours in the home ransacking closets and drawers, eating food in the kitchen, drinking beer, raping the female again, or making additional threats. Victims sometimes thought he had left the house before he, quote, jumped from the darkness. The offender typically stole items, often personal objects, and items of little value, but occasionally cash and firearms. He then crept away, leaving victims uncertain if he had left. The offender was believed to escape on foot through a series of yards and then use a bicycle to go home or to a car, making extensive use of parks, schoolyards, creek beds, and other open spaces, which kept him off the street. The rapists operated in Sacramento County from the first attacks in June 1976 until May 1977. After a three-month gap, he struck in nearby San Joaquin County in September before returning to Sacramento for all but one of the next 10 attacks. The rapists attacked five times during the summer of 1978 in Stanislaus and Yolo counties before disappearing again for three months. 
Attacks then moved primarily to Contra Costa County in October and lasted until July 1979. A young Sacramento couple, Brian, a military policeman at the Mather Air Force Base, and Katie Magrigar were walking their dog in the Rancho Cordova area on the night of February 2, 1978, where five East Area rapist attacks had occurred. The couple fled after a confrontation in the street, but were chased down and shot dead. Some investigators suspected that they had been murdered by the East Area rapist because of their proximity to the other attack's location, and a shoelace was found nearby. The FBI announced on June 15, 2016, that it was confident that the East Area rapist murdered the couple. And that is going to wrap up my portion of this episode. We're going to take another quick break. You're going to hear that coffin noise and take a listen to our Audible ad. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our spooksters a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash three spooked girls and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash three spooked girls and get started today. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. Do you know why I'm super excited about this? Like, why we got this partnership? It's honestly, like, the perfect timing. Yeah? Yeah, because, like, since I'm getting ready to go on my trip Mm -hmm. over to California, like, next week, I went and signed up already, and I downloaded my book so I can listen to it on the plane since I'm a, like, religious podcast listener, and I know I'm caught up, so I have nothing else to listen to. Oh, it's true. That's actually very smart, because I'm sitting over here, like, I have a, like, five-hour plane ride to Tulsa when I go, so that's brilliant. Right? Yeah, and I have been keeping an eye on this, like, thriller, kind of, like, true crime-inspired book that's by an author I really like. It's called Say You're Sorry. It's by Melinda Lee, and they actually had it on there, and you can pick, like, whatever titles you want, so that's what I went and chose for my free book, and normally, you know, it's... $23.99 and I got it for free because I used our URL on that. Awesome. I'm going to check it out. So I'm going to go there right now. So the book that I've been really wanting to read is Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. Because if you know me, I love Reese Witherspoon. And I love the fact that she has this book club and I'm so excited about it. And it's her top one. So oh, there it is. It's available free with the trial. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Because otherwise, I'd be spending like $24.50. Yeah, heck yeah. I know we were talking about that on our other episodes. So that's like perfect. So yeah, you guys, you can pick any book. You don't have to pick just like the books we're recommending. You can get anything. They have so many different titles you guys can choose from. So to download your free audiobook today, just go to audibletrial.com slash three spooked girls. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash three spooked girls for your free audiobook. Again, I'm obsessed. And yes, I haven't read Michelle's book yet. And I think it's because, I don't know, I've I've read so much online (laughs) that I haven't gotten to it yet. That makes sense. Plus, Mm -hmm. if anyone knows me in my personal life, you know that I have like 6,000 books I haven't read yet. Right. It's like not an understatement. I actually just bought two new books today. Nice. And while Tara was saying about the book, I snuck it into my husband's Amazon account because or cart because he's <laughs> buying stuff right now. So, you know, shh, don't tell him. <laughs> It'll already be to you by the time this airs anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> right? Like, let's hope he doesn't catch it. So, okay. There's some things I want to talk about when he was in the East Area Rapist phase. Okay. First and foremost, he was 31 years old when he began. Oh, wow. The string. 
That's two years younger than me. Right. Most profilers would look at these kind of crimes as someone who was in their young 20s, really not that developed. And it's unusual that he kind of escalated. But again, like I talked about earlier, when he was the Visalia ransacker, he was in his mid-20s, like late 20s during this time. So it's the beginning of his crimes. He broke in, you know, he stole things, he invaded people's personal privacies. And then you see with the Snelling family, you see that he steps up his game. He sees this girl and he tries to kidnap her, which is completely weird and not his MO. And there's even a thought that he possibly tried to rape and kidnap another person. There's a lot of cases where they're unsure if it's him or not, but it slightly matches the MO. One of the big things that he always did when he assaulted is he did that diamond knot pattern, which I don't know if you know, but it's not an e- it's not like a quick knot. Mm-hmm. It's very intricate. It takes time. So profilers are looking at this as like he is getting satisfaction. Like he doesn't care about the other person that like he makes the victim he's going to sexually assault tie up, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't care how they're tied, but he cares about the person that he's going to literally violate. And he does this knot and he takes the time and stacking the dishes shows that he is so prepared because people at this point, like halfway through this when he hasn't killed anyone yet while he was the East Area rapist, they were like, oh, my God. He could mean it, though. Well, right. And, like, I remember reading, too, like, he would sit down and make a sandwich and just sit there and eat. Have a beer. Like, he would just mm-hmm. do. He would be in their home. And it it would last hours. This isn't like someone came in, bound these people up, and it happened in, like, 45 minutes and the dude was gone. Like, he would be there hours and multiple sexual assaults, multiple rapes, multiple abuses. There is a famous one of a 12-year-old girl. Her name is Margaret. She's come out and done several interviews in the last few years. And I'm not sure if she is, but my boss actually was on a swim team with a young girl who was assaulted by him. And I'm not sure if this is the same girl, but Margaret has come out and said she was obsessed with the East Area Rapist. Like, she read everything about him. She knew his MO. She knew everything. And so when he woke her up, she knew it was him. She said it was a man with gloves on with a flashlight in her face. And she said she got tied up and he left and he went and got the dishes. I think he went, I think he tied her up first and then went and tied up her mom. And then as he's coming back down with the dishes, she knew at that moment, if he goes into my mom's room, I'm being raped. If he comes into my room, my mom is being raped. She heard him go into his, her mom's room. So she knew before it happened what was going to happen. She knew it was him. She knew what was going on. She said he put his genitals in her hand and asked her, do you know what that is? Grab it. And she said she got very sarcastic and a smart ass and said, nope, don't know. And when he was saying, like, do you want me to kill you? Do you want me to cut your ear off? She's like, I don't care. I don't care. When he was like, do you want me to kill your mom? She said, I don't care. Because at this point, she knew so much about him that she knew his MO wasn't murder. Which, I mean, he just hadn't escalated that far yet. Right. And like the way this woman talks, because now she's obviously, this was in 1977. She's obviously a lot older now. She just like said, very matter of fact, like he raped me. It didn't last very long. And then it just kind of was over. And she thinks that the reason it didn't last as long as it could have is because 
he enjoyed, the East Area Rapist enjoyed the women being afraid of him. She was a 12-year-old little spitfire who was like, fuck you. Mm -hmm. Also, at the same time, this is a very deadly and dangerous thing to do because she was playing with fire. Because he could have just been like, you know what, little girl? You're not afraid to die. You're going to die. Right. Because it literally was only two years later. If he he had committed this crime against her two years later, he probably would have killed her. Absolutely. So that kind of brings us. So Tara talked up into the 1979 and then it kind of ended. And that is because supposedly D'Angelo, who was a cop in Auburn, got fired. Hmm. Yeah. He got fired from stealing a hammer and dog repellent. Mm hmm. Which I don't really, I guess it's like mace for dogs. Yeah, because they were talking it like that would make sense because I was also listening back again to the interview on Crime Junkie that they did on the day he was arrested. And they were also saying it was this kind of repellent to help block your scent Mm. so dogs couldn't pick up your scent. Oh, which may be what, because a lot of people said he smelled different. Mm -hmm. So that might have been it. So he was fired from the Auburn Police Department. Investigator Paul Holes, he's the one who really drove home D'Angelo being caught because they kind of had an idea that it was D'Angelo. And he said that he went and spoke to his old police captain. And the interaction when D'Angelo got fired is he threatened to kill the captain, like, in the firing process. And then, like, a couple of days later, the captain's daughter came out of her bedroom into her parents' room and said, Daddy, there's a man standing outside my window shining a flashlight in. And he said, I knew it was D'Angelo. And in the interview... With Paul Holes, he says that is the perfect retaliation for someone who was the Siri rapist. Because he's basically saying, like, I will kill you, motherfucker. Like, don't play with me. Mm. But anyway, <laughs> moving on from the Siri rapist, D'Angelo is now suspected to move on to his original Night Stalker case. Now, we've talked about his other victims. So he had about 51 rape victims. He had about 120 plus vandalisms. His Night Stalker phase has only 12 victims. But here's the thing. How do I put this? It escalated quickly. So the original Night Stalker happens in the Southern California region. I'm not sure if D'Angelo was down there working. They suspect that he went to new hunting grounds. Because also you have to think about it like this. If he's in the Auburn police, like they're saying he is, He's getting all this information about this this rapist. Right. And like what's happening because they're probably sharing interdepartmental because they're so close together. So in 1979, on October 1st, a man and a woman were tied up using the same kind of knots. But the woman started to scream and they got away, which they attribute to the original Night Stalker. Like Tara mentioned, this offender had upped his game and originally when he was the rapist he picked single moms moms with like children at home and then eventually his mo became a man and a woman Mm -hmm. i don't know why speculation is that it became more enticing right i was gonna say maybe it was more of like a (laughs) power trip because there's also that rumor that um that he's a you know not very uh oh no, that that is not a rumor, Tara. That is a... Uh, Tis the truth. 
Oh, and what you guys can't see, she's she's indicating he has a small penis. Yes. So I feel like with that, maybe switching to couples and having that power of you're going to sit here helpless and I'm still going to do this to your partner, wife, girlfriend, whatever, kind of because he would get humiliated and stuff like that. So you know what I mean? I feel like that was him taking his quote unquote power back and things like that. That's how I saw it. Oh, I found this little note. It was in regards to when he was the East Area Rapist. So one of the things that the East Area Rapist did for a long time is he would call his victims after i heard a recording yeah mm-hmm. and he would leave like these mess messages or talk to them and he would say things like i'm going to kill you but it wasn't just like i'm gonna kill you it was like you know what just google it creepy i thought you were gonna do it because you breathed i was like no tara no <laughs> i was like are we allowed to insert that because oh god i mean i don't know i mean it's on youtube so just youtube it oh god creepy 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 yeah yeah but it's known as telephone scantilagia. I think that's how it said. It's an individual that is sexually aroused by making obscene phone calls. Because if you do listen to several, because I have, because, you know, I'm obsessed. When you listen to him, I think he's masturbating while he's doing it. That's my speculation. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, from like all the other stuff we've talked about. Right. So I think he had like these sense of like he had the depravity, the he had these things that kept him going. And the phone thing, I think, is a very important thing because it it allows him afterwards to relive. And he would go into homes and he would find their licenses. So when he would wake these victims up, he would be like, hi, Margaret. I was like, I don't want to say it a name that I know because all, all the only names that were popping in the head were people I know. I'm like, I don't want to say that. That's creepy. <laughs> he'd be like, wake up, Margaret. And you'd be like, what? Because like, if someone called your name, you'd be like, what? Right. And then you're like, oh, shit, I don't know you. <laughs> so he would do that. And so then he would remember their names and then he would call them and, you know, he would look them up and and follow them. So um, in December of 1980. So think about how long this difference is. So in October of 1979 is when he first attacked that couple down south. And then he doesn't strike again until December 3rd of 1980. There's several theories that he couldn't, cont- he was, that he was going back and forth from Southern California to Northern California and that he didn't want to commit the murders or the rapes in Northern California because he had, I mean, because he literally had like wound himself down into the Bay Area. You know, Tara mentioned he was in Contra Costa and and by Mather and all these different places, which did you say it was Mather or McClellan? Because if it's Mather, that's creepy because it's by my house. Yeah. Mather Air Force Base. By Mather. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to freak anyone out. I live, let's put it this way. I'm the flight pattern for the, because it's now like, it's not an Air Force Base any longer. It's like a, it's a privately owned and like UPS flies out of there. And play those kind of people. Mm-hmm. Like we take our dog there to run because we can walk. So that's really close. <laughs> so anyway, so there's this long gap, like I was saying, between October of 79 to December 3rd of 1980. He entered the home of 44-year-old Robert Hofferman and his girlfriend was with him, 35-year-old Deborah Alexandra Manning. They were found the next day. They were, had been shot. She had been sexually assaulted. The weird thing is they found a really large set of dog prints as if he had brought a dog to the scene with him because hmm. it was a condo. They say that he how he escaped is he broke 
out of theirs and into an abandoned condo and then took a bike and rode away. The victims had the same like knot on it, which is this literally the knot and the MO of like how everything was done is how they connected the original Mm -hmm. Night Stalker to the Seri Rapist is that they found the same the same knots on them. And then again, they found the bike later abandoned. So that was the first murder of this offender. Okay, I have to take that back. So I looked at my notes and I wrote it down wrong. It was December. It was December of 1979. So then, flash forward to March 13th, 1980, and Charlene and Layman Smith were found murdered in their Ventura home. Charlene had been raped. Here's the weird thing. This is where he like kind of went weird. He's this is well, not weird. This is where he kind of got his mo for murder. He bludgeoned them to death with a, a log from their wood pile. Their wrists and ankles had been bound with a drapery cord and they used the diamond knot again, which again is the same knot as the Usari rapist. Again, it's that whole, the man is tied up, the woman is raped. So those are his third and fourth murder victims. On August 19th, he entered the house of Keith and Patricia Harrington and he bludgeoned them to death. Mm. Again, Patricia was raped, but this time they could tell that they had been bound But he took all the ligatures and the murder weapon. So like before with the Smiths, they found the log on the bed with them. But in the next case of the Harringtons, he he just took everything with him. Later on in life, Keith's brother, Bruce, spent $2 million supporting Proposition 69 for California, which gives authorities the right to collect DNA from all felons and criminals in California, which I think is great. Every if every state doesn't have this, they should. Right. I agree. So then flash forward, like I'm looking at this and it's like you look at the timelines. Okay, so we have two dates in 79, one in October, one in December. Then you flash forward to 80. It's March 13th and August 19th. So this could really be easily him traveling back and forth from Northern California to Southern California. February 1981. I'm going to say this lady's name wrong and I apologize. Her name is Manuela Wittenheim. She was raped and then murdered. She was home by herself because her husband was in the hospital with like a viral infection. This is how we know he was stalking people still because he had the perfect opportunity. She was home by herself. She probably was extremely tired because she'd been visiting her husband, probably very stressed. So probably just trying to get some sleep. Yeah. So how she was discovered is her husband went to call her the next day because she hadn't called to check in or come to see him and she didn't answer so he got worried and called i think either some neighbors or the authorities and she was found inside her house she had been raped and murdered but again there were no ligatures or no murder weapon found and then then because she had they had very high like a back fence that was really high that and it was one of those that was like straight boards if you know what i mean So it wouldn't just be like he could jump over the fence really easy. He took their portable television and stuck it right by the back fence. Mm -hmm. So if he needed to get out really quickly and just leave, he totally could because he could run out the back screen door or the back sliding glass door and then just jump onto this TV and then bounce over to the backyard. So he like obviously he took his time like he probably and this is speculation is that he went in, he subdued her and then moved the TV and then did everything that he normally did. Again, I want to point out the fact that he was most likely in her home prior. They say, like, they think he would go into people's homes and, like, scout it out. 
Like with the Smiths family, with the Smith families from March of 80, of 1980, they always left their bathroom window cracked about two inches. And they say from standing there and staring out those two inches, if you were outside looking in, you could see them in bed. So here's a guy who probably stood outside their window night after night and watched them. It was common to leave your windows open, your doors unlocked, your curtains open, things like that, because people just had that sense of security that everything was fine, everything was safe. Right. Made it easier for him. The East Area Rapist is to is literally to be said why that Sacramento has such a high like security system. Comp- There's a ton of them out here. People are always putting shit on their homes. You drive around and you just see like in front yard stakes that say like our home is protected by this company. Because people were so afraid. So they they went above and beyond. On July 27th, 1981, the original Night Stalker broke into the home of Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez. The home was was only a few blocks from Robert Offerman's condo. He entered the house through a window. And this is where it kind of gets interesting. Because Sanchez, who, by the way is six foot three and a big boy, like a big broad boy, isn't in bed. He heard the Night Stalker coming through the window. So he gets up and he gets his flashlight and he's doing what any good man does, you know, goes and looks to make sure that everything is okay. And when he kind of comes around the corner, the Night Stalker steps out. They kind of tussle. The Night Stalker shoots Sanchez in the side of the face and hits his ear, which just stuns and then knocks him out. And so he's out. So then the Night Stalker goes over to Domingo and begins to assault her, tie her up to to rape her and all of that. And um, Sanchez comes to, runs over and starts a fight again with the Night Stalker. And this is like where it's really interesting for me, because at this point, size alone would make me think that Sanchez was going to win. But here is how I think it is, is I honestly think that the Night Stalker had been in their home Knew that Sanchez was a big guy, and if he fought back, he needed to have extra weapons Mm -hmm. because he used a garden tool to kill him. So it's like, I think he went in and planted it. He ends up killing Sanchez, essentially, like, demolishes his head, and then just covers his head up with clothing. Put clothes over his head so he can't see it. And then goes back to his regular MO, which is to, you know, rape and bludgeon Domingo. She had been tied up because of the restraints actually left bruises on her wrists and ankles again the restraints were missing except for they found a bit of shipping twine at the foot of the bed and then here comes the very interesting part there's a five-year gap so i read heard something about that that that's when his kids were born so at the domingo and sanchez murders uh, D'Angelo's wife was pregnant with their first child. Oh, okay. Never mind. JK. <laughs> and then at this one, she was pregnant with their middle child. Oh, okay. I mean, you were you're probably right. <laughs> but I was gonna get to that. Because that, that could be a that could be a trigger for him. Mm. He could have been stressed. So on May 4th, 1986, Janelle Lisa Cruz, who was 18. She was found raped and bludgeoned to death. She was home alone. Her family had gone to Mexico and um, an intruder had entered in and they didn't have a murder weapon, but her father's pipe wrench had been missing. And then this is the last known victim of the Night Stalker, Easteria Rapist, or the Visalia Ransacker. 
So another way that it connected to, they connected these crimes, not the Visalia Ransacker, but the Usaria Rapist and the, the original Night Stalker, which I think is why they deemed him or dubbed him the Golden State Killer, is because he was linked through DNA. I don't think during this time he was inactive. I greatly think he probably stalked people and kept that going. But, you know, he had a child. He probably wasn't allowed out at night a lot by himself because he had to be home and take care of his kid type thing. But in 1982, he called one of his previous victims from 1977 at the Denny's she was working at in Rancho Cordova. And there's some speculation is my thought. And I agree because, again, investigator Paul Holes, this was part of an interview he was saying. Yeah. He was saying that he thinks that this person walked into that Denny's and sat down and probably either saw or was waited on by his victim. Uh. Mm-hmm. It would not surprise me if later in life or later on, we find out that a lot of these victims had encounters with D'Angelo or let's say D'Angelo again. His behavior of stalking and then calling again later makes me believe that he stayed in, maybe not stayed directly in touch, but it's like six degrees to Kevin Bacon situation. Probably. Honestly. Because there's a reason he stole earrings and necklaces and knives and things that, again, that we would all think were useless little trinkets. But I think the reason he stole them. Sentimental value. To those individuals. Mm -hmm. So he stole something that they would miss. And there is a huge thought that he was probably lacking a lot as a child for some sort of emotional connection to people. So he took what people emotionally connected to things. There's also a thought that he would take jewelry such as necklaces that would be very wonderful gifts to the girlfriends or spouses he was with. Because there is the thought that giving someone a necklace of something he stole from them and that he did like, can you imagine, like he stole like a necklace of a rape victim and every time his wife would wear it, he would get to relive it. Isn't there somebody else? I don't know if it's real or a movie. Isn't there something else or someone else who did that? I think in one of the Ted Bundy movies. Oh, okay. They did that. Oh, okay. I remember that in something. I don't know what. And if someone's yelling, it was this, let me know, please, please. Yeah, please. Because I'm like, ooh, it sounds, that does sound really familiar. But I mean, I think this is kind of the thought is that imagine if you gave that, he gave that gift to someone and then they wore it in front of him. Mm -hmm. He could stare at it with it on them and be like, that is something I I stole that from this person and get to relive it. Yeah. So there are some physical descriptions. Tara mentioned them earlier. He was a white male, about five foot ten, slender athletic build. He had about a size nine to nine and a half shoe. He had type A blood, which pisses me off because I have type A blood. I think I'm A negative though. I can't remember. I know it's bad. I should know. <gasps> I'm A positive. Silent thumbs up. <laughs> we both did it to each other. We just made this big grin and like, ah, thumbs up. He was physically agile and capable of sprinting, riding a bike, scaling fences. Some other probable characteristics is they thought he was between 18 to 25 years old when the rapes began, which we know is, if it's D'Angelo, it's incorrect that he was actually older. So Joseph D'Angelo was arrested on April 25th, ni- not, not 19, 2018. <laughs> is Tara's birthday, as we discussed. <laughs> He had either blonde or brown hair. 
And this is the weird thing. He either had dark eyes or blue eyes or light eyes. And I think it's like one of those things, like, you know how, like, they say the BTK killer, like, when he gets angry, he has, like, really, really dark eyes. Yeah. Probably the same thing. Yeah. And one of the biggest characteristics that people often said is that he had a smaller than average penis. Womp womp. I mean, I guess if you had a small dingling, you might be a little mad about that. <laughs> Maybe. His psychological profile is... Again, that he was around the ages of 26 to 30, that he had the parenthetic behavior or brutal sex in his own personal life. So they think that this was probably modeled to him. And people, you know how people often ask that question, like, did you ever think it would be him? Mm -hmm. Did you ever see it coming? Well, people who do this to other people don't see it happening. So it's like, no, I didn't see that he was brutally sexualizing people because I was brutally sexualizing him. That's normal. That kind of stuff. They think that he had um, paramilitary training, police training, or something along those lines. Yeah. Because a lot of times when victims, when he'd catch them, he'd say, freeze, don't move. Or freeze, I'll shoot. Which is something a police officer would say. He was sexually functional and able to ejaculate either with consenting or non-consensual partners. So it wasn't that he was like impotent. Right. So that's not where this sexual frustration came from. He was typically well-dressed, so he wouldn't stand out because he did go into, like, the upper upscale neighborhoods or middle class. Like, Mm -hmm. the thing with this particular type of killer and rapist is that he had to blend in. He had to be the face in the crowd. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie. um, Oh, God, now I can't remember it. It's that Texarkana movie. I'll figure it out later. Okay. <laughs> but it's basically like the ending is, is like he could still be among us. And it's like they're talking about this killer and the boots like walk it. They talked. We talked about it in um in the Urban Legends episode. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like that kind of theory. Like he had to be like like you look at the BTK killer. Like he went to church with people. He was a deacon. Like this man was a member of society. Yeah. Obviously, they think he lived or worked near ventura california during this time he was obviously very skilled as a cat burglar which is why i think also goes back to the police training because they're kind of trained to break into homes without like causing damage you know in case like a child gets locked inside or something like that that it's not too traumatizing Mm -hmm. i mean i know that we think that in tv it's like oh they're just gonna bust down the door they think that he most likely had a criminal record as a teenager but was expunged this could go with d'angelo because he went into the military had means of income, which means he he didn't have to work early morning hours. Like he didn't have to work like a Starbucks shift at four in the four o'clock in the morning. Mm. They say that he hated women for actual or perceived wrongs. In one of his rapes, he actually was saying, "I hate you, Bonnie. I hate you, Bonnie. I hate you, Bonnie." So whoever the fuck Bonnie is, stop it. <laughs> if married, he probably had a submissive spouse that he probably did SMN. S and M. That's right. Yeah, with um, he was probably very intelligent and articulate because one of the main characteristics of him is that he was able to have voice control throughout the entire time. So he wasn't like manic or anything like that. He probably had voyeurism in his twenties or late teens, which I think voyeurism means that he um draws attention to himself. Um, voyeurism is the sexual interest or practice of spying on people engaged in intimate behaviors, such as undressing, sexual activity, or other types of... Ah, so not nice man. He was probably very neat and organized in his life. He probably drove a well-maintained car. Think about it. Like, he had to have 
every single bit of his life organized to keep this a secret. Right, exactly. He had to have total control. I mean, because this is a man who, like, <laughs> that's this started in 1974. Mm-hmm. That's decades ago. So, um, yeah. He peeped through windows and was able to not attract attention while doing it. Most of the time, people would see him leaving their property, but not catch him like standing under their windows. Right. And that's one of the things that they were profiling that it was this person because they would find footprints around the house for like days, which now makes me want to go look at the dirt outside my windows. So he obviously was very assured of himself. He was very arrogant. He was a chronic liar. And he had to be good at his lies. He had to be very, like, strategic about when he lied and how he lied. So, I mean, there's just so... This this case is so... There's so many layers to it. It's like an onion. It is. <laughs> I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, he did so many weird things. Mm-hmm. But I should share this story because when I was sharing with my coworkers, three out of the four... Five of us who work together, soon six of us, three or four of them have lived in Sacramento their whole lives. And three of them lived in Sacramento during this time. Mm-hmm. One of my coworkers, her husband was childhood friends with a very good friend of D'Angelo's. <gasps> I'm clenching my jaws and my hands right now. <laughs> I was like, I was waiting for you to breathe. I was waiting for you to breathe. I was like, breathe, Tara, breathe. So he was childhood friends with a friend of D'Angelo's and they were friends up until like their early 20s and everything like that. And how these two became friends is this guy was out swimming in the river. And as he's swimming, there's like this dude shooting a pellet gun at him. Yeah, your face is the same face as mine when I heard that story. I'm like, they became friends after? Because that would be my first inclination that like, I don't want to be friends with you. Uh, yeah, I'd be like, stay the fuck away from me. And I guess he was like, haha, it's really funny, blah, blah, blah. And then they hung out at a party. But I guess D'Angelo had a cool car and this other guy didn't have a car. So he was like, cool, mm. I can have a friend who has a car. And I think D'Angelo didn't know how to make friends. So anytime someone was like, sure, I'll be your friend. He was like, cool, let's be friends. Makes sense. So D'Angelo and this dude were friends. I can't remember his name. Let's call him Mark. I don't know. Mark seems nice. Sure. So Mark and my coworker's husband were friends. And they hung out a few times together. They didn't, you know, it wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't like, so my coworker's husband, let's call him Steve. Okay. It's not like Steve and D'Angelo were hanging out all the time, but they interacted. So one day Steve and D'Angelo are hanging out and D'Angelo comes over to the house and meets Steve's mom. Uh. And D'Angelo leaves and Steve's mom goes, Steve, I don't ever want that man back in my house. I don't like him and there's something wrong with him. Go mom. Right. So he didn't really hang out with him after that. Good. Because he listened to his mother, which was very good, which is so weird because it's like for me, this is like I mentioned earlier that, you know, the six degrees to Kevin Bacon. Like, I know this person. I know Steve. Steve is my coworker's husband. I've met Steve several times. I've met someone who's met a serial killer. And hung out with a serial killer. Like, it's crazy. It is crazy. And I mentioned earlier, my boss knew one of the victims who was younger. She was on swim team with her. And I guess, like, when it after it happened, the girl just, you know, kind of dropped out mm-hmm. of society for a bit. But so would anyone. Like, that's right. a horrible thing to happen. Yeah. Especially to a young girl. Because this was in 77 or around that. This is why I think it's that Margaret lady. Because it was during that time and she was, you know... My boss was young and Mm -hmm. imagine coming to swim practice one day and they'd be like, hey, guys, 
well, Margaret's not coming back now because something bad happened to Margaret. And then reading it in the newspaper. Right. Poor thing. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this case, there are so many people affected by it. Like, if you just take, like, at least 120 ransackings, Mm -hmm. at least 51 rapes, 13 murders. I mean, there's so many lives touched in this. And they're not even sure if, like, all of them, because you don't know, like, there's that time between 81 and 86 where he's not active. He could have completely changed his M.O., Right. And I mean, just there's even stuff like between after that and through when they caught him. Right. You never know. It's just it's crazy. But obviously, this isn't the end of him on our show. So I'll let you announce that. So we're going to actually stop it right here. We're not going to talk about how they caught him, anything like that today. You know that we have our segment, Stabby Snippets, and we're going to break it down and keep you up to date with what's going on. I will say that D'Angelo's case has inspired a lot of other law enforcements to do the same. So good things are coming because of this case. It's just really sad what has happened to all of the victims as always, our hearts, even though it's been so long, our hearts still go out to their victims and the families because, mm-hmm. like, Janelle's sister is having to remember her older sister as this beautiful, vivacious person and then is no longer with them. So that's where we're going to end it today. Make sure you lock your doors and have a security system. Yes, please lock your fucking doors. Because mm-hmm. some of his victims were literally like, op- like, he was like, oh, the door's not locked. <laughs> Yeah, he would just walk right in. Jesus. Mm -hmm. So make sure you um, lock your doors. Be safe. We love you guys. And we will see you on the next episode. Or Yep. Yeah, we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Bye, guys.